because you're all on the altar, and uh, it should be there for him to control on a daily basis and a constant basis. And uh, we should be individuals that are always allowing him to control us in every area of our lives. Well, I think summer has finally arrived with us. At least it seems like it, doesn't it? And, uh, nice and warm out there for us. And I know that everybody enjoys a little warmer weather. And uh, so it's going to be that way, I guess, for a little while anyway. So we need to thank the Lord for that as well. All right, Jonah tonight. We're going to look at or begin looking at this book that is one of the minor prophets. Uh, you probably know this already, but let me just sort of give you a little background or introduction of minor prophets. These are not minor in the sense that they're not important. You know, sometimes we get the idea of major and minor, and so the minor ones are not as important as the major ones. Well, that really isn't the fact. The fact is they're shorter. And I think you can probably figure that out for yourself, that all of these are shorter. Daniel is rather lengthy, but the rest of them, some of them are only one chapter. And so in the scope of the Bible, they really are uh, minor prophets. The um, original uh, Septuagint uh, would be the uh, Masoretic text would be the Hebrew, the Septuagint would be the Greek translation. They were sort of all lumped together. <clears throat> didn't have this designation of prophets, major and minor. They were all just sort of prophets <clears throat> that were uh, put here together. And this would be, again, the third division of the uh, Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the law, and then you have the history book, I should say, the fourth, and then you have uh, the wisdom literature and the prophets, and a lot of times they're combined together. And uh, <clears throat> as you know, they finished the Old Testament up, <clears throat> and Jonah is one of those books that does so, probably the best known of the minor prophets, uh, because most of these minor prophets deal with judgment, especially against Israel. Uh, they are not following God's word. There is a call for them to follow, and even the major prophets do the same thing, don't they? Major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, not Lamentations, but Ezekiel would be the major prophets. And they're all calling for the same situation for obedience to what God says. But Jonah is written at a time of really great prosperity in Israel. Uh, it was written during the time of Jeroboam II. And uh, it really was a time whenever Israel was doing well. Their borders were expanding. Wealth was coming into the nation. One of the good times, even because of the wickedness that was abounding in the land, if you read history, they would say it's probably because other nations are on the withdrawal at this point, especially the Syrian and the Assyrian Empire, have both withdrawn back at this point of history in the, in the Near East. And Israel is now able to exert itself to an extent that it hadn't been for a while. And so this is considered to be one of its golden ages, not like it was back in the days of Solomon, of course. You could sort of temper that with Solomon's days and David's days really being the high point of Israel. But this would be the divided kingdom, the northern type tribes is where he is basically involved with, Jeroboam II. And uh, so it's a, it's a time of prosperity, also a time of great wickedness. His two contemporaries, that means those who ride alongside of him would be Amos and Hosea. And Amos especially is very much involved in chiding Israel for their lap of luxury and not following through with God's word. Hosea, you know, is the whole issue with Gomer and being married to her and, and all the things that go on. So it would be that time period, 730, 750 A.D., uh, where Jonah is involved. 
And um, the book of Jonah itself <clears throat> has a theme. All books do, don't they? But the theme of Jonah is this. God's workers doing God's work in God's way. Well, that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? You know I read that someplace. Put it together like that. Uh, God's worker doing God's work in God's way. And as your mind right now starts to rummage through uh, the book of Jonah, it's four chapters. You can really think about how doing God's work in God's way becomes very important. And especially if you're God's worker or you're God's servant, the one who is doing these things. Because God is always more concerned about the worker than he is the work. That's an important phrase, isn't it? God is always more concerned about the worker than he is the work. He can always accomplish his will simply by speaking. Look around you. What you see, you know, man solved this lumber, but, you know, creation I'm talking about. God spoke that, and it happened. And if you think about God creating, and what a marvelous job that is, or miracle, I should say. That's all God has to do, just speaks, and things happen. And so, when it comes to a book of the Bible such as this, God is concerned about his worker. He's concerned about the person involved. He's concerned about what's going on in their life. And so that will be the theme as we see this book. Really, it does center around Jonah. Uh, really, the prophecy is going to be very brief. Forty days and Nineveh will be, over, will be destroyed. That is the prophecy. Everything else sort of revolves around his life and uh, him becoming uh, uh, willing to understand and to do what God's will is. And really, as you think about it, I'm not sure Jonah ever became willing. You know, he sort of did it forcibly. But uh, he does finally submit to what God would have him to do. And this book really deals with how God's children, that's us, how we relate to God's will and how we relate to what God wants us to do. And Jonah learns something very important about God in this book. And as we go through, we'll be seeing what Jonah learns that is so very important about God, that God's in control, God's in charge, but it's something that he has to learn. God is very concerned about duty. You know, duty is a great word. We have duties that we are to perform. And as man, as individuals, as human beings, we're more concerned about, especially in our day and time, our rights. You want to get somebody's attention. You want to uh, talk to them on a level that they really want to pay attention to you. You talk about their entitlements or what they are entitled to. And you get instant attention, okay, because everybody likes to understand what they are to get, what they are to have, and what they have just by their own idea of just being alive. And so entitlements, I think our budget of the United States is what, probably 70, I don't know what the numbers are, 70% entitlements anymore uh, because of what's going on in our world, maybe more than that. And so, you know, we're big on entitlements, but what about duty? You know, I mentioned Douglas MacArthur this morning. There was a man who understood duty and what it was all about. And, you know, duty is very important to us, and this book speaks about duty. And man has a tendency to turn away from duty. One of my favorite quotes is Stonewall Jackson. You've heard me say it before, but it's duty is ours and consequences are God's. And every time I hear that, I think to myself, that's so important. Ours is simply to obey. Allow God to bring the consequences 
Of course, Stonewall Jackson was a very godly man, and uh, he understood these things. But our job is to do something. It's the duty that God has for us. And we are to be individuals that understand that we are to perform the duties that God has in our lives. God has a high place for duty. He saved you to put us to work, okay, to do His plan, to do His will. So we have a high place for duty, and, and this is connected to His will for us. His will is our duty, what He has for us. You know, He has this, this plan for all of our lives, no matter who we are. It's an individually tailored plan for you and for me. And it's something that will be, uh, that will be the best for us, no doubt about it. And it becomes our duty to follow that plan as He has laid it out, step by step. And each time that we take a step, we are to remember what that plan is for us. The first chapter is going to deal with God's providence. It's a great topic, isn't it? God is in control. I, I think you know that. But He is in control. And every time I think about God being in control, it just has a sense of peace and calming effect in my heart that God's in charge. He's the one who is running the show. He is the, that doesn't even sound right. He's the one who is doing the things that he wants to do. It almost sounds blasphemy, I thought. You know. He's the one who is involving himself in the different activities that's going on. And so his first chapter is about his providence and about how that he would move in different areas. And we'll see that Jonah's afraid of God's will, basically. Good question. Have you ever been afraid of God's will? Are we afraid that God's will might take us someplace we don't want to go? Do we have a tendency to sort of move back from the will of God and say, you know, God, I, I'm not sure about this one. Jonah, he's afraid. And we'll see that in these first three verses, especially. He's very much afraid to do what God wants him to do. Now, there's some reasons as we follow through in the weeks ahead that we will see this, and there are some even some nationalistic reasons why this is so. But he is afraid of God's will. Never be afraid of God's will. It's always going to be the best. He's the one who understands us. He's the creator. He's the one who knows us. And so we should always want his will for our lives, no matter what it may be. So today, tonight, the question we want to address is this. How do I relate to the will of God? Three points I want you to think about with me. How do I relate to the will of God this evening, and how is God's will related to myself from Jonah's chapter, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3? Three things tonight, and I couldn't get God in the last one, so I had to put Jonah's name, but the first one is that God discloses in verse 1, God directs in verse 2, and Jonah's decision will be found in verse 3. Father, as we spend a few moments, encourage us to always be in your will, no matter what the consequences are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God discloses, verse 1. First of all, God reveals himself. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying. Now in the original, this begins with and. Some of the commentaries that I read made a big deal out of the fact that a couple books in the Bible begin with and. And I forget who it was, one of these writers said, if I would have used and to start my paper in some sense, of, in some sense the English teacher would have just crucified me because you never begin with the word and. And his explanation of why it begins with and is because this is God's continuing revelation. 
God is continuing to reveal himself. And so the first word basically in the Hebrew is, and the word of the Lord came unto Jonah. Word of the Lord. God chooses to communicate. Aren't you glad about that tonight? Every time I think about that, I just, I just have to stop and praise him. That God chose to communicate. He didn't have to. No one was forcing God. No one was holding any kind of, of leverage over God. You know, these terms really make sense. I understand that. No, no one was hurt, hold, holding leverage over God to say, now, you know, you need to get around here. Remember when you was in school, your, your parents said to you, now, you need to get this done. You need to get this done. You need to get that done. Nobody does, does that to God. You know, nobody's standing over him and saying, now, you know, it's time for this. It's time. No. He chose to communicate. And he chose to communicate to us through his word, and that's what he does here with Jonah. It's the word of the Lord. And that, become, that becomes a key phrase in the Old Testament, doesn't it? find that many times in Scripture where the word of the Lord, where God speaks to somebody. And if we want to know God's will, you know how this goes, we've got to read his word. If you want to know what God's mind is, God's heart is, you've got to know what God's word is because this is how God chose to communicate. Communication. We use words. Now, you can communicate in lots of ways. Signs and hands and your body, even the way that you say phrases. All these communicate. But God's word communicates to us in a very, very definite way. And so we find that God is communicating. One of the greatest blessings that you and I have tonight is that the word of God was spoken or given to us. That has to be one of the greatest blessings in all the world. That God would speak to you and I, and especially because we were in rebellion against God. Remember Romans? We were in rebellion against Him. We were sinners. Alienation is the word Ephesians uses. That's a strong word. When you're alienated from somebody, you are turned exactly away from them. Romans would have the same idea. And yet God chose to speak to us and provide for us a way. So one of the greatest blessings that you and I can have is the fact that God was willing to speak to us, say something to us through this book that we call the Bible. One of the greatest cursing, one of the greatest curses is when God takes his word away from man. Now you're in Jonah. Go back just a couple pages to Amos. Amos chapter 8. <clears throat> it's two pages in my Bible. <clears throat> Amos chapter 8. Remember, contemporary with Jonah. <clears throat> and let me mention it again. One of the greatest curses is when God takes his word away from man. Look at Amos chapter 8, verse 11. He says this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God. Notice how the Lord God is spelt. That I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Now, there's a whole message here that we could speak about. Famine of the Word of God. Greatest curses that we can have is not having God's Word. And I fear today that many individuals are finding this curse to be true because they are not hearing God's Word. We're hearing a lot of other things, but we're not hearing God's Word. And a great curse is when God takes his word away from people. 
doesn't use his word, doesn't allow us to hear what his word says. I mean, it's covered up with a lot of psychology and fluff and innuendos, but it's not the revealed word of God and given in that sense. Even churches today many times are falling prey to not allowing God's word to be heard because it's said to be offensive in many different ways, in different areas. This is what we're here for, to hear God's word, hear what it has to say. And we find that, again today, many want their ears tickled. Well, that's going to be uh, our second Peter in not too long, second Timothy in a couple of weeks, where, you know, just the tickling of the ears is all that's really needed anymore. But we need to hear God's word, and when individuals are not hearing what God has to say, hearts can become cold and drawn away from Him. So God reveals Himself, and all I can say to us is praise the Lord that He reveals Himself, and I am so glad that He does. Secondly, as He reveals Himself, He speaks directly. It's sort of the same idea, but I want to just make a little difference here because it says, It came unto Jonah the son of Amittai. He speaks directly. God is going to use a man to do a job. It's important. God uses people to do a job. He could use rocks, angels, stones, clouds to speak, but it chooses us. It chooses people. And so he uses this word and he says it to Jonah, a very specific person. I have a job for you to do, Jonah. And you need to do this job. Now, the name Jonah, of course, means dove. And when you think of a dove, what do you think of? Peace. You're going to have some demonstration today of peace. What do they do? They let all these doves go all over the place. You know, it's supposed to symbolize peace, and it does. You know, we're, we're used to that kind of symbolism. So, you know, the idea is that it's peace. But notice his father is Amittai, which means truth. His father means truth. His name means peace or dove. And I like this. The only way to have peace today is with truth. Every preacher's father should be true. Isn't that true? I'm using the word true too many times. But it's a fact, isn't it? Every preacher's father should be truth. Every person's father should be truth. And Jonah's father's name was truth. Amittai. Hebrew word for truth. And so we find that he is one who understood this. Now, Jonah had served God before. If you go back to 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, we find in the days of Jeroboam II that God had called him to give a message, and he faithfully gave that message to Jeroboam. And he did it in a way that God approved. But just because we've been used once, there's no guarantee he's going to use us again, is it? Just because we've been obedient one time in our life, it's no guarantee we're going to be obedient the next time. And we've got to be sure that we're keeping short accounts with God and not relying upon our past achievements or our past blessings, but being very current in the fact that we are following Him at this moment and doing exactly what He wants us to do at this time. So, just because you've been used in the past or Jonah was used in the past, it's no guarantee he's going to be used in the future. God works in hearts completely and directly. So we find that first verse, God discloses. The second place, God directs in verse 2. Now, 
he directs, first of all, a certain place. Notice these are, there are three commands involved here. Arise, all imperatives. Arise, go to Nineveh. So this is a certain place. You get up, you go to Nineveh. Now, it's described as a great city. And the third direct command is cry against it. So go, get up, I'm sorry, arise, go, and cry. It's all commands. God says, here's what I want you to do. You know, God is definite about His will. He's not vague. He's not in mystic, it's not mystical or hard to figure out, especially at a time. And even in our day and age, people say, oh, I wish I knew the will of God. Well, you know, God's Word has the will of God in it. What is it? It's our sanctification. And I love the phrase, you know, we need to start doing the things that we understand about God's will instead of thinking about the things we don't understand. And it's so true. We need to follow what God's will is telling us. And so here God is saying to Jonah, get up, go, and cry. So it's definite. Now, what is our responsibility? We're to get up, go, and cry. Pretty simple when you think about it. And this city is, is called Nineveh. Now, I know you probably study ancient history often, probably not, but Nineveh was a great city. It is probably connected to, to the Babel of the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 10, probably. <clears throat> and at this point, it became the capital of the Assyrian Empire, which was a huge empire. Somebody has done some archaeological digs about the area and uh, have talked about there's probably four cities involved in Nineveh. And uh, <clears throat> individuals have sort of done some, some dimensions and talking about it and Somebody thought that this city could have had a 60-mile circumference around it, its wall, these four cities. And they say there could have been up to a million people. That's a lot of folks in the ancient world. Now, again, all guesses. But we do know it's a great city because we'll hear that over and over again. But this is a very cosmopolitan area. It's one that <clears throat> where it is the leading city of the day. It's the, the capital of the empire. It's, the, it's a place where where um, lots of things are happening. And so he is to go to this large city. Now, for Israel, they didn't like Nineveh very much. You know, Jonah doesn't like Nineveh very much. He doesn't even like Gentiles. He's, uh, he's very much against Gentiles. <clears throat> and so here we find that they are to go to this Gentile city and give this message of salvation. And... Most Jewish individuals did not think that Gentiles deserved to hear the message. And yet that's not the tone of the Old Testament. You can study the Old Testament, Isaiah. They were to be a messenger to the, old, to the world. And yet here we find that Jonah is going to have some difficulties to this, go to this certain place. But he also has a certain subject that he is to declare in verse 2. <clears throat> and that certain subject is, their wickedness is come up before me. God is never vague in His call. And we see that God is concerned about sin and wickedness. Notice that phrase. It is come up before me. Every time I read that, it gives me that idea of the Old Testament where the incense is rising into the nostrils of God. And here, the same idea is wickedness. It's sort of, it's, it's sort of building up and it's going up to where God's domain is. 
And this is something that God cannot tolerate, this sin that's coming up. Because, you know, sin is against God in every way. Sin is that which sent his son to the cross, not here, but of course all the sacrificial systems going on. And so we find that God is concerned about wickedness. He's concerned about sin. He's concerned about America. He's concerned about our sin and our wickedness. No doubt about it. <clears throat> and one day we're going to pay the price for this as well. This will be a five to 600 mile walk. Not a ride. He's not going to get public transportation. He's going to walk. Maybe he rode a donkey. I don't know. I don't know exactly how he got there. He, it's overland, so he didn't take a ship. <clears throat> five or 600 miles. And notice he's not going to address social issues. Uh, he's not going to teach philosophy. He's not going to dig wells. Now, again, all these things go on today. No, he's going to teach God's Word. There's going to be a five to 600-mile journey, and at the end, he is going to have a message of judgment against this city. God will not tolerate wickedness. His holiness makes him sensitive to sin in all forms. No matter what form they take, God hates sin <clears throat> because of the fact that he is holy in everything that he does. And one of his attributes is holiness. And we can make this conclusion. The closer we get to God, the more he's going to purge these sins from our lives. Because he wants us to be right with him. He wants us to be in a position where he can use us. And so we draw closer to him then we become also more sensitive to sin because of the fact that that is what God hates. He hates sin in all of its forms. God is going to use His man. He's going to declare a message of wickedness. And we find that God many times places us in areas that He can use us. And he gives us the enlightenment we need to be used by God at those places. So here's God directing. You know, here's a certain place, Nineveh. It's clear, and all the words tell us that there is no, <clears throat> no, uh, there's no ambiguity about the whole area of where he's to go. Go to Nineveh. And the subject is clear. Their wickedness is what I want to address. So <clears throat> I want you to notice in this verse, and have this understanding very plain in our minds, that... Jonah knew what to do. Jonah knew what God's will was. There's no question about it being vague in any way. But notice, thirdly, Jonah's decision. That's found in verse 3, and it's, it begins with the word but because he's going to be in rebellion. <clears throat> and notice his actions, Jonah's actions. But Jonah rose up to flee into Tarshish from the presence of the Lord, and went down to Joppa, and he found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare thereof, and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Notice Tarshish is repeated three times in the verse. Tarshish is directly opposite. It would be probably modern-day Spain today, if what we know is right. Nineveh would be east. Tarshish would be west. 
And so he goes in the exact opposite direction that God has directed him. Now, he moves quickly. Remember, he rose up to flee. So he moves quickly. He gets himself in action. But he moves quickly to get away from God's will. It's not the way we should function. And he knows what God can do. I mean, he served God in the past whenever God gave him directions. But he moves in the wrong direction. Is not this the way many times that we work, we draw near to God at a snail's pace, but we depart very quickly. Whenever God is giving us his direction as to where we should go, you know, we get there, <coughs> it may be very slow. <clears throat> but boy, when it comes to departing away from God, <clears throat> we, can move that, we can do that very quickly. <clears throat> and that's what Jonah does here. It says he arose up to flee from the presence of God. And many times we do that. He has lost his purpose. God wants him to do something and he loses his purpose. Notice it says he flees. First, first part of verse 3, he flees unto Tarshish. Notice the next prepositional phrase, from the presence of the Lord. He's moving away from God's purpose. He is resigning his commission as a prophet. He's saying, I'm not going to do this. Sorry, God, I've got a better plan. I know what I'm doing. And I'm going to go in the opposite direction of what you say. I'm going to do things my way. I've got a better way than you. I've got something that I think would be much more effective, and that's to go to Tarshish, not to go to Nineveh. He's lost that high purpose that God has for him. Because God's will and God's direction, verse 2, plain, clear, completely and totally free from any kind of fall, and yet he decides that's not where he wants to go. All of nature has a purpose. It's God's will. And what's going to be interesting is in this chapter, everything in this book but man will follow God's will. Think about that. Everything in the book of Jonah follows God's will except man, Jonah. The epitome of the creation, the highest point of the creation is the one that will rebel. The whale or the great fish will respond. The storm will respond. Everything will respond and do exactly what God tells them except Jonah. And isn't that so much like things today? where we have a tendency to do things on our own. He should have loved the human race enough to go and share the message. But no, no. Do we love the world today enough to share the gospel with them? You know, Jonah has the opportunity and he doesn't do so. So his actions are what? He goes the other way. And notice the direction. It says he starts to go down. He went down to Joppa. And he goes down into the ship. Anytime that you are turning your back, you are starting to go down. There's no question about it. When we turn our back upon God and we start doing things our way, we are going down. And yes, I'm sure the geography here is down, but <clears throat> his spiritual life is also down. We've got to be sure that our spiritual life is not going down. Well, some people would say, well, well, now look at this. 
he found a ship going to Tarshish. Now, just wait a minute. Let me think about this for a second. It must have been God's will. Because why else would the ship been there? I can hear somebody reasoning that way, can't you? I mean, you know, if this wasn't God's will, there wouldn't have been a ship. I like the phrase that I heard somebody say, if you disobey God, Satan will always have a ship ready for you. Isn't that true? If we choose to disobey God, Satan's always going to have a ship. Because circumstances do not determine God's will. We are to follow the word of God which says, Jonah, you go to Nineveh. And no matter what circumstances are around him, no matter what events happen, no matter what somebody directly told, told, told that God said to them, if it doesn't line up with God's word, it's not God's will. I don't care how convenient it is. Satan always has a ship if you go the wrong direction. We must always look to God's word for direction. And if we're going against God's word, then it's not from God. If it's going against the revealed word of God, then that's not his source. And notice, he's willing to pay the fare thereof. Man seldom worries about expenses if it's to carry out his own will. If it's to get my will accomplished, it doesn't matter what it costs. It doesn't matter what it costs about anything. But let it be for a spiritual reason, and man, it's always too expensive. But here he's moving away from God. It always is costly to disobey God. Always. It's costly spiritually, it's costly physically. It's costly emotionally, and it's costly economically. When we choose to disobey God, it costs us much. And it will cost Him in every way because He has chosen to disobey God. He will not obey God. He has made up His mind. And He says, God, I am going to do things my way. I am going to do things this way. I am going to tell you exactly where I'm going to go. And Tarsha says, that's not the place that God wants him to go. And so we find that he's not going to obey God, no matter what happens. I've made my mind up. This is where I'm going to go. And he goes down to Tarshish. So, let's conclude with this. A couple statements. Let me just sort of sum it up for us. God is always more concerned about the worker than the work. I think that's so important. He's always more concerned about you and I than he is what we accomplish. He's concerned about what we learn. He's concerned about what becomes a part of us and who we are. Because God loves you. God's concerned about you. God wants you to be in the very presence or the very center of his will at all times. And so he's always going to be concerned about the worker. And he can accomplish his saying simply by speaking. Creation. But he has to prepare his worker. You know, he can move all of creation into existence, but he has to work with Jonah. He has to bring a, a whale 
He has to, to bring all these things in his life where he finally goes to do what he wants to do. He has to bring a gourd. He has to bring a, a, a worm. He has to bring an east wind. I mean, the list is long that God works. And yet, I don't think, as we'll see, Jonah ever gets it as to what's going on. All of nature in this book obeys God, again, except the highest part of his creation, Jonah. That should be a that should be a discouraging thing for all of us to think that all of creation has a tendency to obey God except us. It should be convicting. And we should be looking to say, am I obeying Him as I should? He simply decided that He is not going to obey. He resigns His commission. He says, no, I'm not going to do it. Are you willing to do God's will? As you read God's Word, and God gives to you those instructions that are important. Are you willing to do it? Or do you say, well, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about it. <laughs> you don't think about God's will. God isn't throwing out suggestions. God is making demands upon us. And so he gives to us the same idea. Here's what you are to do. We must be sure that we're doing it. Father, I thank you for the fact that